chapter 14, the last few verses of the chapter, so we continue to go through this great book. By the way, a young man in our church put that song to the test, been working on a job, and he told him he had to work on Super Bowl Sunday. He said, I ain't working on Sunday, I'm going to go to church. He said, well, if you don't work on Sunday, you're not going to have a job. He said, well, I guess I'm giving my two weeks notice, and so he trusted the Lord and uh, just stood his ground. You know, he got a two and a half dollar an hour raise. He didn't fire him. They kept him and gave him a raise. Sometimes I don't think we put these things to the test, but he trusts the Lord. Proud of that young man. John chapter 14, and we are at the end here. This farewell. We've been having trouble with this thing. I don't know. Okay, we're good now. So you got nothing so far? Okay, we're in John 14. All right, verses 28 through 31. The title of the message is Love is the Heart of the Farewell Discourse. And again, just reminded of Jesus' pastoral heart, love, mercy, and compassion in preparing these 11 for what is about to unfold in just a very short period of time. Just a short period of time, what? Judas is going to come 
with a band of soldiers. He's going to arrest Jesus. They're going to have this exchange in this uh, altercation. And Malchus is going to get his ear cut off. Jesus is going to begin this road of being spit upon and mocked and, and, and berated by the public. And then ultimately stripped and nailed to a tree and shed his blood and die as a substitute for sinners. And these 11 are going to be left without their master, without their leader. And you take away the shepherd and the sheep are scattered. And, and all of this is about to happen. And, and Jesus knows this. And so he's telling them in advance what is going to take place so that when it does take place, they won't be in disarray, run away and say, forget all of this, but that the Spirit of God will bring these things to their remembrance and they'll go, this is exactly what he said. And they will believe to the degree that they would be willing to give their lives as martyrs. So this is what is going on in this farewell discourse. Now, my introduction is short, and it is a quote of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. And because love is the heart of this farewell discourse, so hear these words. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant are rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. See this in the life of Christ, and you'll see it in this passage this morning. The thesis for this message is that the obedient love of Jesus is to be duplicated by his followers as our testimony of love to him. The love of Jesus is to be duplicated by his followers as a testimony of our love to him. In verse 28, the expression of love, verse 28, you have heard me say to you, I am going away, I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Pay careful attention to this phrase, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. It's a great expression of love. Three things under this that I want you to pay attention to this morning, maybe help you. But number one is this, is love obeys. Obviously, in our pansy culture that we live in, love is nothing more than some type of an emotional state for many people. But there's more to love than some type of an emotional feeling. There is this theme that runs through love of sacrificial obedience. Now let me remind you, just in chapter 14 that we're dealing with, let me remind you of the conditional statements that the Lord Jesus has given. In verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. In verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then a negative statement in verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So you see this from the lips of Jesus, this tying together this conditional statement that love and obedience work in harmony. It's increasingly difficult because of text so clear to say, Jesus, I love you, I just don't want to do anything you say. That doesn't work out in Jesus' theology. Genuine love has a desire, a delight, something within us that makes us want to be obedient unto him. Something internally drives the Christian to be pleasing to his Savior. Something there that wasn't there before conversion, but now as a Christian, something inside of me wants me to worship, wants me to read, wants me to be a part of the fellowship of God's people. Something's happening inside of me that gives me this desire for obedience. (coughs) Second thing I want you to see under the expression of love, and I hope that you can grab this, not just in relation to Christ, but in relation to your brothers and sisters. Love rejoices. Love rejoices. Now, in my verse, rejoices at what? Love would rejoice at this statement. Jesus says, I am going home. I'm going to my Father. If you love Jesus... You should rejoice. In a sense, it's a promotion. Leaving the world, returning to the glory which he had before the world was created, returning to the splendor and the majesty of all of heaven. If I love Jesus, that's good news. Should rejoice. But somehow these 11 at this juncture are not able to rejoice. If the disciples, they'll get there, but they're not there yet. But if they truly love Jesus the way he ought to be loved, they would rejoice at his gain. Their grief is an indication of their self-centeredness. Think about it. We are not able to rejoice with Jesus... And we're not able to rejoice with a Christian brother or sister because our self-centeredness clouds our vision. I can't be happy for you because what I'm going through. Now, you know, God puts whoever he wants to put in your life, but it's nobody on the planet that's been better in my life than Jonathan Murdoch in this regard. 
If I was to call Jonathan Murdoch tomorrow and tell him I went to the store and I was walking down the aisle and I had a dry throat and somebody gave me a piece of gum, he'd go, wow, praise the Lord, King's kids right there, buddy. He said, man, I'm so happy for you. If somebody gave me a piece of gum, he'd think I won the Super Bowl. Hey, he just, he loves to rejoice when something good happens to somebody else. I love that about Jonathan. And it, it gives me some kind of an envy. I want to do better at that and learn how to rejoice when something good happens for you. It's a really good quality. And when Jesus says, I'm going home to my father, man, that's great. Why would I not be happy that Jesus gets to go home? But if I'm caught up in my pity party, if I'm caught up in woe is me, if I'm caught up in all of life's difficulties on myself, I'm not able to rejoice for others. Note, it's a lack of love. And we could get really, we could go to meddling here, could we not? It works in marriage too, guys. And it works with children. It works with coworkers and friends. Are we able to rejoice when something good happens in someone else? If not, at least ask the question, why can't I rejoice when somebody else has something good happen? You know, here's how sad we are. Why does the good stuff always happen to him? Because we think the world ought to revolve around me. It shows our self-centeredness. They should have rejoiced because he was going to the Father. This statement grants us understanding to why he came. He came down in order to lift us up. Think through the whole process. Why did he come? If he doesn't return, then this thing is only half accomplished. If he doesn't ascend, we don't ascend. They reach the, you, you just reach the point that we're still in the middle of the course. Maybe as Calvin said it, Calvin said, We too imagine to ourselves but a half Christ, a mutilated Christ, if he doesn't lead us back to God. He's just a crucified Savior. So our rejoicing in his gain is also a rejoicing in our gain. Christ finishes the course by making it home. And we are taught that Jesus, this is a great statement, Jesus, quote, was not appointed to be our guide merely to raise us to the sphere of the moon or the sun, but to make us one with God the Father. Jesus came down from glory to earth to substitute, and that's not the end, in order to bring us up into perfect union with the thrice holy God. And so you're going home, praise the Lord. You know what it means? There's a resurrection. There's life after death. And so they had an inability to see this now. They'll see it later. But now, what about you? You can read this whole story. When it comes, you know, around here we have this thing called Easter and we do the sunrise service. We do service here and we have whole week-long services. Does it give you great joy to know that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead? That he ascended back to... People say, man, if Jesus was here, I'm glad he's home. Yeah. 
Let me give you, maybe this example will help, I don't know. You remember old Joseph in the Old Testament, and you remember Joseph was unjustly charged and thrown into jail. If, if you're in jail with Joseph, he's put in charge of the whole prison. He's a good guy, he's solid. And so they put him in charge of like everything, because he's dependable, he's a man of honesty, a man of integrity. And then one day, he gets released, finally. Well, what's his release? His release is he gets put in charge of the entire country. He's only second in charge to Pharaoh. There's nothing that happens in Egypt unless it goes through Joseph. If you were his friend and you were in prison with him and he got released to that position, wouldn't you be happy for the guy? I mean, he's not in jail no more, but he gets to run the whole country. I mean, should you not rejoice? Well, on a much grander scale, Jesus is departing voluntary servanthood. I did not come to serve, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. He's leaving voluntary servanthood to return to equal glory with the Father. We should rejoice in this. And those who love him do rejoice that he's delivered from this world and he's seated at the right hand of his majesty on high. Now, I want you to see two things, two points we should be reminded of. Throughout history, Christians have been a lot more aware of their own griefs and sorrows than the things that bring joy to King Jesus. It's a great time to learn. Listen, are you able to have joy when something good happens for Christ? Now, I know the context of the sermon, but just on a practical basis. If the gospel is rightly preached, can you be happy? Can you rejoice that a a pastor would open the Bible, read the verses of the Bible, give the sense and the meaning of the scriptures in order to give proper uh, testimony and attribute Christ with all the glory? Can you rejoice in that? Do you understand in church life, there's people that come to church and go through church motions, and every time you talk to them, they say things like this, where's everybody at? What do you mean, where's everybody at? Well, I don't know why they're not here. Look, I'm here. Say hello to me. It's like we find something to complain about in some regard, in every facet. It's like, do you have a church where the Bible's preached? Could you not be happy? Do you have a church where they seek to exalt Christ? Look, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. If you can find a place that somebody at least attempts to give Jesus honor, there ought to be some type of joy in your heart that Jesus is made the primary. So so you have to examine where you're at with that. Yes, the Father is in glory and the Son is in his incarnation. During this passage here, we know that. He's in human flesh. But we're also reminded of functional subordination. Jesus willingly submissive to his Father, taking a subservient role to do whatever the Father says, speak whatever he says, go wherever he says to go, complete submission to the Father. Are you with me? And people lose their minds if I say women are supposed to submit to their husbands here. But submission is not a negative thing. Christ is in a submissive role to his Father. And he makes this statement. Love recognizes this. 
I'm telling you, I don't have time to pursue it. This is one of the statements that gets obliterated by people all over the world. Here it is. Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. You go back in church history and the Arians just about lost their mind over this statement that Jesus could not have been God because even Jesus says God is greater. We are not talking about deity. Jesus is not saying God's a greater deity. He's not saying that at all. Jesus is in his incarnation. The Father is in glory. Now, let's think this through. The Father is greater than I. In what ways? Before I ponder that, think about this. If I say to you that the governor of Texas is greater than me, I don't mean in humanity. He's no more or less human than I am. Now, he may be greater in authority. He may be greater in position. He may be greater in influence, but he's not greater in humanity. And Jesus is not saying that God is greater in deity, but he may be greater in some other respects at this time. What respects? Well, I'll give you some. I'll give you five. Positional. Greater how? Positional. God dwells in heaven and Jesus has nowhere to lay his head. I'll give you poverty. God possesses everything. And in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Jesus gave up his riches to be poor. What about pain? God is being worshipped in the splendor of his glory. Jesus is a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53. Or picture this, if you can. God the Father is seated, Isaiah 6, on a high throne. Glory uneclipsed, surrounded by angels, worshipped with uninterrupted praise, while the Son is despised and rejected, surrounded by enemies, and soon to be nailed to a tree. Think about it, in pain level, Jesus' pain is greater here. God is so far exalted greater in this time and position. And then ponder this. Fifthly, ponder Jesus is about to return home. His gain is unspeakable. His humiliation will be turned into glorification. Right now in humanity, he is less in these regards, and the Father is greater. I don't think the statement means any more than that. Because you get to John 17, 5, what are you going to find? He's going to be restored unto the same glory that he had before the world was created. A couple of things of application. Love is best expressed by obedience. Number two, love rejoices when others have good fortune. And number three, love recognizes the position of those over us. Shouldn't be that hard, right? For the wife to understand that the husband is the head of the house, she's to submit under his leadership. And you say, well, that's kind of a controversial statement. It's no different than a child ought to recognize that the parents are the head of the home. They're to submit under the authority of their parents. It's no more difficult than your employer is a head over you as an employee and you're to submit to his leadership. It's, it's no more different than a pastor in a congregation. There are different roles and different positions, but it has nothing to do with value of humanity. 
But one position is greater than another. It's the way that it's assigned, and we know that. So whatever position that we're in, we ought to respond in that position in a way that's honoring unto God. You say, well, I don't know how we can do it. Jesus showed us. He submitted unto the world. He submitted unto all these obligations. He submitted unto his Father, and he lived them out without complaint. Ever. Ever. And lived them out faithfully to the glory of his Father. Secondly, verses 29 and 30, an expectation of love. The expectation of love in verse 29 and 30. Look at the text again. And now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has no claim on me. Here's Jesus' omniscient purpose, if you will. He can speak of things that are about to happen that have not happened before they do because he has the advantage of deity. Remember back in John 13, if you just glance over one chapter, John 13 and verse 19. All 12 are still in the room, and he says one of them will betray. And in verse 19 he says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I'm he. He can speak accurately about events that have not occurred in his omniscience. And when those events occur, we should believe him. Now, we have the advantage of written material. We go back to Old Testament. We go to the New Testament. We see prophecies in the Old Testament. We see them perfectly filled in the New Testament. We see prophecies in the New Testament that are yet to be fulfilled. We put these things together and say, you know what? God always speaks truth. His word's always true. You know what? I should probably just believe him. I should trust his word because it always comes up yes and amen. So I should, I should conform my life to this. Prophecy's perfect predictions are intended to produce genuine faith. Telling them of his departure so that when he departs, the Holy Spirit would bring this back to mind, it would all click together, and they would give their lives in belief of him. Secondly, under this expectation of love, you have one who is on his way. On his way. You see there in 29 and 30, (coughs) He says that the ruler of this world is coming. The ruler of this world is coming. Judas has already left the room. He went out quickly. He had to hurry about his task. You remember he says, how much will you give me if I have him identified for you? They give him 30 pieces of silver. This is already in the process while Jesus is talking. Judas is en route with a band of soldiers to arrest Jesus. Which, by the way, I still find humorous that, as Jesus himself said, I was in the temple with you openly, daily, teaching, and you never arrested me. Now you want to come out here at night with clubs and swords? Like, look, I'm not hard to find. It just seems fascinating to me that they'd go to such lengths to arrest a man who never offered any violence. They never see Jesus beating anybody up or cutting somebody's head off. So why are they so scared of him? they got to come with clubs and swords. But nevertheless, they're on their way. And I do want to remind you of this. Although that the ruler of this world is coming, the devil himself, if you will, Judas is accountable for his actions. He willingly is a conspirator in this, and he submits himself to the devil, and the devil has no problem instigating him to carry it out. 
but he's still accountable for his actions, and he will suffer judgment for what he has done. Then a great phrase here that Jesus says. He says in regards to the ruler of this world or to Satan himself, he has no claim on me. No claim. I'll give you a couple of different translations. They all say basically the same thing, but you may hear them worded differently. He has nothing in me. He has no claim on me. He has nothing over me. He has no power over me. This phrase has typically been taken in one application, but I want to give it to you in two. And the one is right, and that is this. The devil can bring not one single valid charge against Jesus. He's got nothing on him. You know, you get in relationships, marriage relationships, work relationship, friend relationship. It's like somebody always has something on you. You remember that time? You remember that time? And they bring that history thing back up because they have something over you. And you're like, oh, yeah, I remember. The devil has nothing over on Jesus. There's nothing he can dig up. Okay, if you don't get it that way, try running for a public office against somebody who hates you. They will find something, and they'll get it in the papers to discredit you where they can get elected. Can you imagine how CNN would lose their mind trying to discredit Jesus? They can't find anything. They can't dig up any past evidence. The devil has nothing. I want you to hear that because I want you to be reminded of the sinlessness of Christ. But a second application. It is also revealing that Jesus is not being dragged away by the devil to the cross. He has no power, no claim on Jesus. Don't watch one of these weird Hollywood movies and come up with a different interpretation. Nobody's dragging Jesus to the cross. Even in the garden when he's arrested, he's in charge. He willingly goes to lay down his life. It's voluntary. He came of his own free will. He gives up his life for you. Nobody takes his life. We'll see that verse in a moment. But I just want you to understand, nothing has been forced on Jesus by the devil. <clears throat> the prophetic words of the Lord Jesus are intended to produce faith. So stop. If you're lost, you haven't been baptized, you haven't professed faith in Christ. Every week the pastor preaches out of this book. Why? These words are intended to make you believe. You should respond and say, I believe Christ. Okay? Christ commanded you to be baptized. Christ commanded you to join, to be a part of a local fellowship and not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Oh, okay, that's what the word says, I believe it. That's the intention. The written words of Scripture are intended to produce faith. And, and let me give you a note of good news, because I don't want you to miss the good news of this personally. The devil has no claim on Jesus, that's for sure. But because of the atonement, the devil has no claim on you. He has nothing over you. I want you to get that. Who, what does Paul say? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? 
What charge are you going to bring against Randall? The devil says, well, you did this, you did this, you did this. Uh, Excuse me, but my Savior substituted. His blood was poured out, and I've been washed. I don't have any sins as far as the east is from the west. All of my sins have been taken and cast behind his back, and I've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. He has no claim. He can't pull me to hell because the atonement has forgiven me. Lastly, this morning, verse 31, the example of love. You see it there in your text. Jesus says, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Notice the phrase of Jesus, I do as commanded. I do as commanded. Now, you have this, in basketball, you have a triple threat. Well, in Jesus, you have a triple keep. So if you go to John 14, 15, 21, and 23 that we looked at at the beginning of this sermon, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my words. All three of those conditional statements about loving and keeping, Jesus, if you will, is the triple threat. He never faltered in any of them. He always kept the exact word of his Father. How amazing. Here's the man clothed in human flesh that he only spoke what the Father said to speak. He only did what the Father said to do. He only thought like the Father would have him to think. There's no blemish in any of his character. The one that gets me the most is there's never even an untrue word on his tongue which meant his heart was pure. In every way, he was obedient. The true definition of love is detested, is tested, and Jesus passes the test. But now, that example of love is given to you. Do we pass the test? Do do I pass the test? Are there ways that I need to improve? Are there things that are clear in Scripture that I'm not being obedient to? Are there things that I read and I push to the side because I don't want to adhere to those? I need to repent, ask for help, that I can be obedient because my obedience gives, shows demonstration of love and it honors my Savior. Look back, if you will, to John 10, verse 17 and 18. This is one of the climaxes to me of Jesus' obedience. But John 10, 17, for this reason... So we're not leaving subjects, right on cue with this example of love. Why does the Father love Jesus? For this reason, the Father loves me. Why? Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, of my own free will. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This command or this charge I received from my father. This is what my father said to do and it's what I'm doing. What he wants me to do is what I want to do. You see the similarity? This is what the father wants. It's what I want. Now apply it to us. This is what Jesus wants for my life. You know what? That's what I want. They go together. How do they come together? In love. When you truly love, obedience falls into the equation. And we find this. You know, there's a lot of fruity songs on the radio, I understand. Christian songs, supposedly. But I don't know the name of it. I just know this line because I 
drives me insane. But the line is, is when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. You know, I think probably at least get it in the right order. When Jesus went to the cross, his father's will was the main thing that was in focus. And honoring his father because he loved his father. So whatever he's doing on the cross, the primary motive is for the glory of his father. Now, it could be secondary causes that can come, but the primary motive is the glory of the Father. But secondarily, if you will, so that the world will know something. This is a great, interesting statement. So, that the world may know something. In eternity past, the love between the Father, Son, and Spirit has always been a perfect love. Now, if the triune loving God existed in eternity past in this loving relationship without any uh, digression whatsoever, perfect triune love in the Godhead from eternity past, you would never know it unless he came. You'd never understand it. But if you use an objective eye and you view the life of Christ, now you may not say you don't come to saving faith, But if you use an objective lens and you evaluate Christ, his motive, his reasonings, and what he did, you are forced to say this, Jesus loved his father. Even the atheist, if he's going to be objective and the sense of a logical thinking mind, has to say, well, I don't believe Jesus and I don't believe God, but if this story is true, this man loved his father. How do we know that? Look at what he voluntarily submitted himself to in order to express his love. Look, you can look at me and I can look at you and say, well, I don't know how much they love Jesus. You know, sometimes I think maybe it's not that great, maybe sometimes okay, and we can kind of measure people like this, and there's times I think so-and-so loves Jesus, there's times I don't think they love Jesus, but when I look at Christ, I can't come to any other conclusion than that he loved the Father. Yeah, whether the world believes Jesus or not is one thing, but there's no doubt about the love that Jesus had for his Father. And one day, on Judgment Day, they will confess him, according to Philippians 2, 10, 11. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of the Father, every one of them. But undisputably, we know that Christ loved the Father. Now, he concludes this section by saying, rise, let us go from this place or let us go from here i'll remind you of what i know to this point and then i'll tell you what i don't know what's happened well he's washed their feet y'all remember he's eaten passover supper with them he'd given them accurate predictions of judas's betrayal peter's denial and he had taught the 11 some glorious truths and he had instituted the lord's supper And he has pastorally prepared them for his departure. All of that's gone on in this upper room. He says, rise, let us go from here. The problem I have is I don't know what to do with 15, 16, and 17. Because if they left here, when does 15, 16, and 17 happen? I'm not sure. So that's the part I'm a little uncertain on. So I'll just lean and go with A.W. Pink this morning. And A.W. Pink makes it really simple. He says, well... He said, rise, let us go from here. And this got up from the table and went to another room. And then you had 15, 16, and 17. At least I can go with that. I mean, you're sitting around your kitchen table, and you have company, and you sit around and talk, and eventually the kitchen chairs aren't that comfortable, and you got a lazy boy in the recliner, and you say, hey, let us go from here. 
to the other room. I'm good with that. You want something better? Make it up yourself. But let me give you a final. The way Jesus lived in humble obedience to his father is an expression of the genuine love he had for his father. We are to imitate this principle as the expression of our love to King Jesus. Now, this is not in my notes or anything, but I do want to say this. As much as it is important for you to demonstrate observable love to Jesus by your obedience, it's true for all of us, me and you, that our lives of obedience would be a testimony that we love him. But also, don't lose that other thing that we all need as Christians, to be able to love each other. And how so? To be able to rejoice when something good happens for someone else. I stink at this. Which means what? Well, I probably don't love you as much as I ought to. I mean, hey, at least be honest, right? But there's a, there's a connection here that if there's genuine love, I should be able to be happy for you. If Travis gets a big job tomorrow to make a lot of money, I should say, praise the Lord, I'm happy for you. Right? I mean, I should be able to respond that way. As a church body, we should be able to do that because that's what love ought to generate. Well, in conclusion, before Kevin leads us in song, I just read the verses and point out the words that stand out. Love in believers might look like this. And I quote from Hebrews eleven twenty three. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, when Moses had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sins. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He was looking for the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not afraid of the anger of the king, and he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith... He kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. God said, put blood on the lintel of the doorpost. I love you and I believe you and I'll do what you say. And they were spared, right? So I see that in Moses and I pray that we can see it in ourselves our love for the Lord Jesus and our obedience. Kevin, come and lead us.